Good morning, everyone. Okay, so we are approaching the end, and uh, you can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, we'll be talking about going through Esther chapter 9. Um, chapter 9 is, uh, I believe it is the longest chapter of Esther. Um, there's a lot to... Well, I will say it is a pretty straightforward chapter. It's a lot of um, uh, tying loose ends, if you will, right? Uh, things that have been uh, developing, things that have been kind of building up in the uh, narrative, as you know, as we talked about last week uh, with chapter 7 and 8, and, you know, a lot of uh, resolution happened there. Chapter 9 is almost uh, sort of a continuation slash, so... You know, that's where we are kind of thing. So um, we'll look at that. Uh, but first, just to review quickly, uh, as we talked about chapter 7 and 8, um, especially chapter 8, um, it was full of mirroring. There's a lot of unpacking, something, the things that have been uh, uh, developed uh, in the earlier parts of Esther. Right, um, and we looked at various examples of uh, how uh, the the author chooses to use mirroring technique in the structure of um, the book, and a lot of that was present in chapter eight. But some te- takeaways, you know, uh, what was that? A lot of these things, you know, happened uh, by coincidence, right? Um, on a surface level, you would look at it and categorize it as coincidence, but um, you know, looking at the message of Esther um, and, and how we have talked about how the author seems to be trying to uh, use the narrative of Esther coupled with the lack of mention of God's name as this device to point towards God and to highlight these quote-unquote coincidences as perhaps workings of God behind the scenes um, it, it's easy to see how these coincidences can be more than just happenstance, uh, more than just uh, random uh, chances of things happening, but rather things falling into place um, and a peculiar way of how life works sometimes. Um, and Esther really is rel- or relevant and it's relatable because we often find ourselves in the shoes of Esther and Mordecai, right? Jews who are living in a foreign culture, a foreign, uh, under a foreign power, uh, sojourners, if you will, exiled people uh, who have been come or who have been thrust into a situation where they are uh, forced to make a choice. Uh, am I going to do what is right or am I going to do what is convenient? Right, and uh, thankfully Mordecai and Esther they continue to choose to do what is right um, and what is righteous, even in the presence of evil like Haman, even in the presence of poor leadership like King Ahasuerus. So, uh, I mean, that's where we are so far in Esther. In chapter nine, we'll see the main uh, purpose of chapter nine. I would say is the the establishment of. Purim, the Feast of Purim, uh, but that was not a surprise. We knew that uh, the whole book of Esther 
had something to do with the Feast of Purim. Uh, as we said, uh, like the first, uh, the first class of this uh, book, we talked about some of the challenges of Esther is that some people kind of played the uh, chicken or the egg game with it, um, saying, did somebody write Esther to kind of authorize or give more credit to the Feast of Purim? Is this a made-up story just to say, hey, you know, this happened, therefore Purim is legitimate, blah, blah, blah. But we talked about how that, that's kind of a, that's a very weak um, argument, as the Purim had already been established for a long time uh, before um, they needed credit or, or uh, authority behind it. But anyway, let's read chapter 9. It is a long one. Um, and uh, if someone will read, please, from verse 1 through 10. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. Verses 11 through 15, please. 16 through 19, please. Okay, so um, we can obviously see that uh, the feast is becoming established, right? Um, so chapter 9 is the main and obviously the biggest ironic reversal of Esther. Um, and, you know, we talked about how Esther is a book that is, def- you know, it's characterized by all of its irony, uh, these reversals, these coincidental uh, things that happen that you one would you know reading the story one would think that it would go one way, but in fact something happens and the tide turns and it goes the complete opposite direction. A lot of that happens in Esther, and this is the biggest example of of the narrative of Esther, and it's the one that's been building up since the very first chapter, right, uh, where the Jews are in, in trouble, right? They are about to be destroyed due to Haman's plan. But, uh, lo and behold, <laughs> they do not. And in fact, they don't just not get destroyed. Tide turns, and they are allowed to defend themselves and destroy their enemies. Uh, so, um, what Haman set forth, as we you know, found out in chapter 8, it could not be revoked. Right? A king's edict, king's decree, cannot just be taken back. Right? Um, you, you can't just put a, a whiteout over it. Um, once the king has signed off on it and his signet is on the, on the edict and has been sent out to all the provinces, all the states, whatever, um, it cannot be revoked. Uh, that's just the, how it works. That's just the law of the land in uh, the Persian Empire. So, obviously, they could not revoke the decree, the first decree that Haman sent out. Uh, regarding the destruction of the Jews. But, funnily enough, even this is not a dis- disadvantage. Right? On a surface level, you would think, oh man, you can't revoke that? that? I mean, that's literally genocide, and you can't take that back? can't do something about it? Well, turns out that this was, uh, this was not a disadvantage, and it actually became an advantage for the Jews, because what this allowed is that this reality uh, allowed for the king to give authority to uh, Mordecai, and Esther to send out a second decree, right? As we saw in chapter eight, that basically allowed the Jews to act in self-defense. Um, those who harbored 
hate and sought harm against innocent people uh, of the Jewish uh, people, um, they were allowed by the second edict, second decree, to uh, act in self-defense and rid themselves of this uh, conflict. Um, So even what Haman planned to do in his evil, ambitious, greedy uh, intentions, even that was reversed. Even that was flipped on its own head and it gave instead his victims, or his uh, was-to-be victims, the advantage to completely annihilate their enemies and to completely rid themselves of the hatred and, and the harm that they were about to face because of Haman's plot. So, yes, chapter 9 is the biggest ironic reversal of the book, and it is the main one. Um, so, you know, some have difficulty with the violence here. Uh, but, and in fact, a lot of these people who have, a lot of those who have um, difficulty uh, processing the violence here also have difficulty processing a lot of the violence in the Old Testament. Um, but some things to remember uh, that I would like to remind you is that these were not just anybody. Like, the Jews were not allowed to just go and kill anybody with no context, with no, you know, nothing like that, right? So these were people who harbored hatred for the Jews, right? They would have, for them to have categorized them as such, they would have known, right, or made public that these people were people who did not like the Jews, who hated them, and in fact... Their hatred was so great that with Haman's edict, Haman's uh, decree, right, they have grounds to just go and kill innocent people, innocent Jews, women and children also. So these were not just anybody, right, that the Jews were allowed to uh, act in self-defense against. These are people who had intentions of harming innocent people, innocent Jews. The second edict also was one of self-defense. Right? The first one was one of instigation. Um, Haman instigated this whole thing. Uh, he, by sending out this decree, he uh, was allowing people who had, who was disgruntled and had hatred for the Jews for whatever reason, be it history or uh, just pure, plain hatred, for another man, uh, Haman was giving them an opportunity to carry out that hate in murderous intent. Right? That's terrible. That's evil. Um, and the second edict was basically uh, one that was allowing the Jews to act in self-defense. Right? So this was not, of course, it is still violence. Right? And remember, even God said to David, you know, you have too much blood on your hands. To when, when David uh, wanted to build the temple of God, right? God said, that's not for you. That's not the job for you because you have blood on your hands. So God does not overlook violence. Uh, God does not overlook um, things like this. However, it, we need to remember that there is context here, right? Um, these are people who were seeking to kill innocent people, innocent Jews, women and children, right? And another thing to... Uh, kind of point out about this 
Um, and this is an important detail that uh, you probably may have noticed, uh, is that there is contrast between Haman and Mordecai's uh, decrees, or how Haman's people, right, the people who hated the Jews, were going to carry out uh, this uh, act of killing, and how the Jews went about in defending themselves. And I think the point that the author is making is very make, made very clear in the detail of the plundering. Right? If you noticed in uh, chapter 9, verse 10, 15, and 16, right, notice how the Jews did not plunder the goods of their enemies. In chapter 3, verse 13, right, in the, within the detail of the parameters of Haman's decree, at the very end of the verse, if you will remember... The, the decree that Haman calls for calls for the plundering of the victim's goods. Haman's intention in doing this, not only was it for hate, but it was to gain advantage, monetary, financial advantage. Right? Uh, it was an incentive, almost, to call these people. Because, uh, you know, you might hate somebody, but you don't want to kill them. Right? You don't want to... You're not going to commit murder. But what if someone said... Oh, you can kill them, and you can take their goods. You can take their their uh, uh, their their riches, their wealth, and you can have it for yourself. Well, that's an incentive for someone to act in a murderous intent. So, Haman's decree all around it was just evil, and the kind of like the icing on top, the the cherry uh, on top is this the detail of plundering. Haman was allowing. Uh, the people to not only kill those who hate uh, or kill those that they hated, but also give them an incentive to take their goods after they have murdered them to use for themselves. Pure, pure evil. Perhaps, perhaps. I don't know if Haman was referring to his own personal uh, uh, right. Um, I'm sure, I'm sure. Uh, within the context of the, the uh, um, Susa, maybe, perhaps. Because, um, I mean, I, I, I'm sure that Haman, if this were to go through, Haman would have also participated in, you know, the carrying out of the genocide of the Jews. Um, so, perhaps. Uh, and, again, I mean, that's, that's, that's great because, yes, Haman initially also convinced a king through financial incentive, right? Hey, allow me to put out this decree that's going to have people kill Jews. In return, I'm going to put uh, this X amount of money in your treasury that'll benefit you, right? So he basically bribed them. <laughs> and, and not only that, he also sort of bribes, right? Uh, put out, puts out a financial... Uh, uh, monetary or uh, resource incentive for the people to carry out this heinous and evil act of killing innocent people. Um, so that is a sharp contrast to uh, what the Jews do, right? Uh, Mordecai uh, puts out the second decree that basically fixes right the first one and tells the Jews. 
we understand that you are going to be attacked on this day. You have the right to take up arms and act in self-defense and kill those who uh, have harbored hatred towards you and who are actively trying to uh, cause harm to you and your family. Um, and the Jews do that, but they do not lay hands on the plunder of their enemies. Again, chapter 9, verse 10, 15, and 16. They specifically don't do that. And it's interesting that the author includes this detail. Um, something that we have learned, I'm sure, in studying Esther, and hopefully something that you will apply to your study in other books of the Bible, is that these details that seem insignificant, even uh, some... We often joked about this at Fried Harmon in Bible classes. You know, when you're going over genealogies, people kind of like roll their eyes out. Like, why do I need to read genealogies? Well, even those genealogies that are kind of boring and you're not really sure why they're there, even those have purpose, right? Um, I'm not going to go into, <laughs> you know, listing all the genealogies and their purposes, but I promise they have purpose. The author included those details because... He has intentions uh, of, of uh, conveying a message, right? Um, so even this kind of detail about plundering, it's interesting that the plundering is mentioned three times within the context of the Jews defending themselves, uh, how they did not do that. And I, I think it's significant, right? It's a callback to um, the days of conquest and the Canaan lands when uh, under Joshua's leadership when the Israelites you know they would conquer a city or, or a people and what would they do they would not touch their goods their plunders right this was not that was not about conquest right it was taking their rightful place in Canaan land but it was not about the resources that they had the, the wealth that these people had. And in fact, God commands them not to do that because oftentimes it was tied to idolatry. It was blood money, right? So God does not want them to touch these things. And it's as if uh, that kind of practice carried over. Um, and, and the Jews in this context, right, in the context of uh, acting as in self-defense, right, violence, but one that is contained, right, in the context of hey, I'm going to defend myself and my family because these people harbor hate against me and they have made known to me that they are going to cause harm uh, within uh, the parameters of the decree of Haman. So I think, I think that's an important detail that kind of sets apart Haman's decree and the intentions behind the people who would cause harm to the Jews under Haman's law versus the Jews who, yes, they, uh, they were forced, their, you know, their hand was forced, where they had to defend themselves and they had to rid themselves of this, uh, uh, these people who uh, harbored hate and had uh, malicious intent against them. But they did not plunder their goods. Right? They were not doing this for their own financial gain. They were not doing this to gain an upper hand against their enemies. In fact, they were not the instigators of this incident. They were simply acting in self-defense. And it shows by their, um, their, their intention shows through by their actions and the choices that they make in this uh, circumstance. So 
There are some details. Let's continue reading um, in from verse 20 through 22. Somebody will please read 20 through 22. Okay, I'll just go ahead and finish out the chapter. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is, cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in waiting that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written, and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces in the kingdom of the kingdom of Hazarus in words of peace and truth that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to the, their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim and it was recorded in writing. So this is, uh, and then chapter 10, we'll go into next week, but this is sort of a, um, it's like a summary of what has all happened, uh, and kind of an epilogue too. Um, so the significance of Purim, again, is that, if you remember, uh, back in the earlier parts of Esther, uh, Haman, the the way he got the date for the destruction of the Jews is that he cast lots every day, or they cast lots to him every day for like a whole year, right? And if finally they decided on the day of uh, the 13th day of Adar, right? And so that was by pure chance, right? It wasn't, it wasn't like... Uh, Haman was looking through the calendar and said, "Ah, any, any, money, mo. I'm going to pick this date." No, and, you know, he cast or he was cast lost to uh, to decide the date, um, and he did that for like a year, and that was the date that was finalized before he went to uh, King Ahasuerus to seek his help or his authority to carry out his plan to destroy the Jews. Um, so even the even the date itself, right, is quote unquote coincidence, right? It was random chance that it landed on that day. Um, but as we know, and as we have read so far, uh, that day has been turned over on its uh, own head. Um, it was meant to be a destruction of the Jews, right? it was meant to be a day of sorrow and mourning for the people. Of God, but instead, through uh, through various things happening, various ironic reversals and 
uh, things that one would see as coincidence, but one I think we can see as uh, the workings of God behind the scenes, um, the tide was turned. Uh, and no longer were the Jews in, living in fear, but they were living in gladness and rejoicing, and, uh, and, and it became a holiday. So, I mean, that's pretty straightforward. There's nothing really to unpack there um, theologically. Uh, but something uh, I, I think is, is a great lesson for us is because Esther so far has been such a relatable book in terms of, you know, we are Christians and we are God's people, right? We have citizenship elsewhere and we are sojourners in this foreign culture, right? In terms of that, um, I think even chapter 9 with the Feast of Purim and the people remembering and, and fasting, but also celebrating and making this a holiday because it was a... I mean, that was a traumatizing day for them, right? It had to have been. And yet they turn it into a day of celebration, a day of rejoicing. And I think that's very applicable to us because sometimes, uh, like Esther and Mordecai and the Jews of Persia, we, uh, we encounter various hardships, um, some hardships that are traumatizing and leave lasting scars uh, on our hearts. Um, And it's easy for us to become bitter. And it's easy for us to remember those times as times of just hardship and and focus on the trauma, focus on the negative uh, memories, uh, focus on the bad circumstances that define that period of time. I think something that is brilliant, um, and and this is a pattern in... uh, in the Old Testament, and really you can see this in the New Testament too in certain aspects of the church, is uh, this practice of feasting, this practice of communal gathering, fellowship, right, and celebrating and rejoicing, not just celebrating with your family, your immediate family, and, you know, eating good food, and, you know, that's all good, but really making uh, sure and being intentional about gathering as a community, Right, gathering as a large group of people who share values, who share uh, the, the kind of mentality to rejoice, to be intentional in praising God, to remembering not only the sorrows of the past, but the lessons that are learned, and also celebrating those things. Right? I think that's very important. Right? And, and the fact that Esther and Mordecai made this into kind of like a commandment, right, for the Jews, their descendants, to remember and to keep this feast was not so that they can say, oh, I came up with this and, like, I'm making you do this. Like, you know, that it was not for their own authority or for their own gains, but it was to make sure that their children remembered the things that happened, that their children remember the sorrows and the trauma that was there, but also learn from those things that God had a hand in all of this. And because of that, they were able to get out victorious. Right? That was a celebration. And, you know, I'm not saying we need to start coming up with, you know, feasts <laughs> to put on the calendar um, every year and all that kind of stuff. But there's something to be said about um, how we process these kinds of uh, hardships, 
traumatizing events, what have you. Because it's very easy for us to become bitter, and it's very easy for us as humans to kind of focus and get tunnel vision on the negative things, even within our memories, even within the things of the past. What the feasts did for the Jews in ancient Jewish history is it was not just something else for them to keep. It was more than that. It was a community thing. It was a rejoicing thing. It was uh, remembering what God did for them. Remembering God, period. And remembering uh, the covenants. And remembering all these good things in the context of food, fellowship, and togetherness. We need to learn from that. We need to do the same. right? It's not just optional. I honestly think it's not just optional because it's very easy for humans because we are so social, social animals, right? It's very easy for us to kind of become recluse, right? And to separate from each other and to focus on the negatives and, and to only remember the bad things. But when we're together and when we're intentional about rejoicing in God, counting our blessings and sharing in that gladness and, and being thankful for what we have and how we have, because all of us are here. That means we have come out victorious in the traumas, in the bad things of the past. That is already a blessing number one, right? So there is a lot to be celebrated. So um, in chapter 9, as they establish the Purim, right, more than just the Purim itself, the fact that they establish this, the fact that they continue to do this every year to remember and to commemorate and to celebrate, right? I think that's a lesson for us too. Um, as we encounter bad things, and we will encounter hardships as Christians, especially nowadays with the culture that is around us, there are many challenges for us to overcome. It is especially then important for us to not just kind of retreat into our own heads, right? And to become bitter and hard in heart. But to open up to each other and to share in fellowship and together rejoice in God and be thankful for what we have. And maybe even uh, going after challenges, uh, not by yourself, but with each other, right? And that's what the church is for, um, and, you know, I mentioned how the church and certain elements, you know, still reflect that reality uh, of what the Jews did back in the day with the feasts and with the community kind of togetherness, right? That's what, that's what the church is for us. So utilize the church, right? It is your body. It, it, it is the members that are present here. That, those are the other parts of the body in which you are a member of. So be together and celebrate and rejoice together, always. And don't let the negatives and the bitterness take over your heart. That's all I got for today. Thank you very much. Um, we'll look at chapter 10 next week. And uh, for the rest of the month, we'll kind of keep unpacking and, and discussing Esther. But next week we'll be done with the reading. <laughs>